Uh, right, guys, I'm delighted to be joined in the den today by Andy Grant. Andy is a former Marine turned motivational coach, but an absolutely fascinating story, an incredible journey uh, that Andy's been through. I'm delighted that he's been able to come and share that journey and those uh, stories and experiences with us today. So, Andy, welcome to the downtown den. Thanks for having us, Frank. Cheers, mate. It's great to see you, and we probably will get the ball out. Offline, we've just been talking about our respective football teams, Everton and Liverpool, so we'll look at that in a, a little bit later on. Uh, but listen, mate, of all the uh, inspirational stories that I've been fortunate enough to hear over the years, and you know, we've been uh, very privileged to be able to speak to some very successful entrepreneurs, successful political leaders and decision makers, um, but there's few that come close to uh, the story that you're able to share with us today. Um, so let's take you back to your career in the Marines. And the first thing I'd like to ask you, actually, Andy, um, you know, as somebody who's probably uh, a lover, not a fighter, um, what is it that motivates an individual uh, to go into the armed forces? Because clearly, uh, as soon as you sign that paper, um, you are putting yourself in harm's way. Yeah, no, you're right what you say. I definitely class myself as a lover, not a fighter. And I was never one of these barmy army kids growing up, you know, who wanted to be in the military. I wouldn't say I was very patriotic either. It was nothing like that. I mean, my dad was a firefighter, so he had an interesting job. So it wasn't a normal nine to five for him. But I always talk about when I deliver these motivational talks, I think people think that I want to speak straight away about my experiences in the Marines. But the biggest thing that played a part in me even joining the Marines was I lost my mum when I was 12. Um, she passed away with leukaemia. And I always wanted to do her proud, do my dad proud, do the family proud. And, you know, because she died at such a young age, it made me kind of realise that, you know, you get one life. You've got to try and squeeze everything you can out of it. And with that in mind, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think like most kids, you don't really know what you want to do when you grow up. And I just thought, just do well in school, go on to sixth form, go on to uni, and then hopefully you'll fall into a job that you, fall into a job that you love. Mm. And around about 17, I saw an advert for the Royal Marines, and it said 99.99% need not apply. And being the cocky 17-year-old I was at the time, I thought, you know what, I could, I could probably do that. And it sounds really stupid, Frank, but I was very naive. I didn't ever think that in 12 months, you know, 24 months time I'll be in Iraq or Afghanistan for me it was just about proving to myself that I had what it takes to become a Royal Marine Commando you know to be part of this brotherhood and I kind of fell in love with the idea of being a Marine rather than actually knowingly what's gonna come if I do get to become a Marine so you could say I was a bit stupid really for joining in the first place but <laughs> to answer your question I think it was just that drive to be to be part of this brotherhood to be have this other extended family to prove myself, to challenge myself. I think that was they were the big driving forces. It wasn't so much to fight for queen and country. It was just to prove, to see if I had what it takes. Mm. Uh, and, and what is the life of a Marine like, particularly in that rookie stage, uh, Andy? And uh, you've referred there to something that we will obviously get into in terms of uh, Afghanistan uh, and those conflicts that we ended up in. But in those early days, um, you know, does that camaraderie and that sort of training um, prepare you for, for almost anything that life throws at you, do you think? 
Yeah, I think so. I think the Royal Marines are obviously known around the world now for being one of the most elite fighting forces. It's the longest and hardest training we have here in the UK for military. It's 32 weeks of basic training. Mm-hmm. And we have in the Marines what's called the Commander Ethos, which is, you know, it's probably like most good businesses will have similar values, but the likes of courage, determination, adaptability, fortitude, cheerfulness in the face of adversity, those kind of traits that you probably don't realise they're getting drummed into you throughout the 32 weeks of training. But subconsciously, you kind of feel yourself growing as a person. And as I look back now, you know, 15 years on from, from doing that warm rain training, without doubt, it made me a much stronger person, much more resilient, much more determined, courageous person. And it is all down to those those Royal Marine tactics of, of training someone up. And it's not all as maybe out there and crazy as, as maybe some may think that the Royal Marine training is. A lot of the big lessons I learned were from very simple tasks. You know, things like, I remember one time there was 60 of us standing outside our accommodation block. I think we'd messed up in, in, some, in some way of shape or form. And the adults, 60 of us lined up and said, right guys, you have two minutes back into the accommodation block and back out here in shorts and t-shirt ready to go to the gym. Now, it's impossible to get 60 guys in an accommodation block, all changed, all back outside in two minutes. Now, everyone knows it's impossible, but you try your best. You get out there within two minutes and not everyone's there. So you're all in the press position, maybe three and a half, four minutes later, all 60 of you are then there. The training team will give it the whole, guys, it's a simple task. All I wanted you to do was get dressed in two minutes, that's it. Do it again. So you're running in again, and, and you might do this this process maybe ten times. And at that point, you get a lot of people out of those sixty will turn around and think, "This isn't what the Marines is." I thought I'd be doing this. I thought I'd be jumping out of helicopters. I thought I'd be doing beach assaults. I'm not bloody doing this. And it gets rid of so many people. And it's and that's the big thing about the Marines. You know, they do little simple tasks, which at the time you just think, "This is ridiculous. Why am I doing this?" And you look back over time and you think, "You know what?" I learned to be a bit more resilient there. You know, when a lot of people quit and give up, I kind of stuck it out. And it's those little life lessons that you learn throughout training, which I think put us all in, in, a, in a much better place. Mm. And you've, you've very briefly there, Andy, linked, you know, some business cultures um, to what you learned in the Marines. Uh, and I would suggest that actually, you know, businesses can learn an awful lot from organisations such as the Marines and, you know, we've applied a culture within uh, the downtown and business team, which drew an awful lot on sports leadership um, because there are management leadership lessons that you may have as an individual. But I think any successful business creates that great team ethos. Yeah. And obviously, you know, in something like the Marine Corps, then that is vitally important. Are they the sort of things that, that you bring to the table when you're going out and speaking to businesses now and talking to business leaders about your experiences? Yeah, it's funny, Frank. When I first started doing this, I kind of thought, okay, I've got an interesting story, but apart from hopefully a motivational, inspirational story, when I started landing these big corporate jobs, I used to think to myself, and like, I was only maybe 25, 26, I was thinking, I've never been in business. What can I teach these people? You know, Surely they've got all the answers. And I very quickly realized that there's so many crossovers between business and the military and sport, like you say, you know, leadership skills, working as a team. And there were so many crossovers that I didn't really learn until I started going into these businesses, delivering talks. And like you say, the values of the Marines and the ethos that we have. And again, 
sport is a huge part of the military, you know, and all that kind of thing fits so well into business. And I've seen it more and more over the years that companies are then taking a lot more from sport, a lot more from the military, and I'm putting it all together. You know, I always say, you know, I, you talk about teamwork. I always talk about my one experience of being blown up in Afghanistan, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but on that particular morning, whether it was the guy who put a tourniquet on my leg or whether it was the guy in Birmingham Airport back here in the UK who was holding up paddles when my plane landed, you know, if not everyone had done their job to the best of their ability, I wouldn't be sitting here now. And it's so mm. important for business leaders to learn that, that no matter what your role is in that organisation, mm. everyone's got such an important role to play because if you know one person doesn't put in 100% effort, then success at the end of the day will look very, very different. You know, and, and that's the whole kind of thing with any business, whether it's something, something as extreme as being blown up in Afghanistan or a normal day in, in your line of work. If not everyone has put in the required effort, things are going to look very different at the end of the line. And that's the kind of lessons I try and take from my experiences and, and, and tell people that, you know, in, in the military, you know, you don't have to love everyone you work with. I think there's this kind of maybe myth that, in the Marines or any military, everyone loves each other and it's this big brotherhood. Mm. It's not, you know, you, you have people that you don't get on with all the time in every walk of life. Yeah. The important thing is, you know, you need to at least respect each other and always give the people 100%. Mm. And I think that's the difference. And, and they're the kind of messages and little stories to try and drop into businesses. And you can see people thinking, actually, yeah, you know what, the, you know, the girl who works on reception, who maybe does get undervalued, actually, she plays a pretty big role in this place because she's the, she's the face of when people first come in and that's the first impression. And, I think just trying to get those little kind of snippets of info across to people has really helped. And I'm guessing, Andy, you know, during the current crisis, people are more aware now of uh, those uh, workers who perhaps we haven't valued as much as we should have in the past. And, uh, exactly. you, you know, you, your prime minister ends up with coronavirus and it's, uh, you know, it's the hospital cleaners, it's the nurses, exactly. it's those people who, who he's got to, to thank for his life now. So it's a great point that you make. Let's get into your experience in Afghanistan then. But before we talk about, obviously, an horrendous thing that happened to you, when you get that notification um, that you're off to war, what is going through your mind at that point? Well, I think a lot of soldiers would say that they were kind of excited and, you know, they'll never ever think it'd be them that got hurt. And don't get me wrong, there was a bit of me that was excited, but... I'll be honest, I had just this this horrible feeling in my stomach that something potentially may go wrong. And I think around about that time, 2008, 2009, hindsight would later tell us that 2009 was the deadliest year for armed forces. And it was around about the time there were a lot of IED strikes. The Taliban had changed tactics to putting bombs everywhere. And yeah, there was a lot of uh, apprehension. I was very, very nervous. And don't get me wrong, there was a bit of that excitement where you're thinking, I've trained and trained and trained. I'm now about to go and apply everything I've, I've learned. But yeah, without doubt, I knew how, how dangerous the situation was going to be. I'd previously served in Iraq, but Iraq was much more of a, a kind of peacekeeping tour. It was much more about training and, and mentoring and coaching the Iraqi Marines and the Iraqi Navy. This tour in Afghanistan was going to be about going to eradicate the Taliban from um, Sangin, where I was based. So yeah, I was uh, I was very nervous about the task in hand even before I landed in Afghanistan. Mm. I'd have uh, to use a technical phrase, Andy, been absolutely shitting myself. <laughs> I have to say, uh, I mean, I, I just I can't even imagine. 
Um, I mean, I was as well, but I mean, the, the thing what I think definitely helped me that is that you're surrounded by a lot of guys who've got a lot of experience. And again, it comes back to teamwork. You know, I always, I always use a saying, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to change rooms. And I can, yeah. I can thankfully say I was never the smartest person in any room in the Marines. So I was constantly always surrounded by people who were, who were a lot more experienced, a lot better than me. And I think that gave me a lot of comfort to think that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm in good hands. I'm in a good team. Mm. Uh, now, uh, I mentioned the current situation. Of course, one of the big criticisms that the government have faced is the lack of preparedness um, for going into the crisis, the lack of PPE. Um, uh, again, can I ask you the question, Andy? Did you feel as though um, there was good planning uh, before you went into that situation? Did you feel as though you had the right equipment, the right infrastructure in place for you and your colleagues to be able to handle that situation? It's always a funny one. I think when I speak about the Marines, the leadership and everything we had on the ground, it was always second to none. Within the Marines, you know, the officers and the leaders amongst amongst us were, were absolutely fantastic and I'd never have a bad word to say about them. When you bring in the government and the political side of things, I could tell you a million stories where things were inadequate and things didn't go right and things weren't planned properly. Even now, 11 years after I got blown up, I'm still fighting for compensation now. I'm having to go to a number of tribunals because the government are paying these solicitors to argue against my injuries. So when all this kind of PPE and the lack of things and certain mistakes the government have made, I can't say that's been a, it's been a huge surprise. One, one big example for me to just show you the, how sometimes the government doesn't really quite get it, let's say, was one, one massive thing we had in Afghanistan was something called ICOM. Now, ICOM was was basically a walkie-talkie system that the Taliban would use to communicate with each other. And it was a great telltale sign for us because in the middle of the Afghan uh, day, obviously very sunny, the sun would would obviously um, be shining. And when the Taliban were, were using these walkie-talkies, you would see a kind of the glimmer of the aerials and it would be a great combat indicator that potentially that's, that's Taliban because obviously not everyone would have these walkie-talkies. So... Straight away, you knew potentially this could be a threat. Some bright sparking government decided it would be a great idea to give everyone in Afghanistan radios so that we could share our message, even though they didn't want to listen to us. So suddenly we went from having this fantastic combat indicator of, of what works to then every man and his dog now had a radio. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things. If you'd asked the guys on the ground, yes. is this a good idea? Everyone would have said no. Mm. It's don't give them any one radios because it's going to make it harder for us to, to see the enemy. Mm. And yeah, you know, within a matter of weeks, everyone had a radio. So, yeah, the, the, the poor kind of planning in, in the government and the, and the lack of um, agency that's been seen over the last few weeks, that, that hasn't surprised me whatsoever. Mm. Uh, and the other thing, listen, there's, you know, there's been reams written and spoken about in terms of the uh, wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and the rights and the wrongs. Um, but again, I think, you know, if I'm going to, to fight um, and the old phrases for queen and country, um, you know, self-confessed, you, you're not a particularly patriotic person anyway. You know, the one thing that I would want to be feeling in my bones was, you know, this is actually making a, a genuine difference to the guys and girls back home. So, you know, when you look back at the Second World War, for example, very easy, isn't it, to correlate the objective and that being a great thing for the United Kingdom. And so, you know, tomorrow we're having VE Day, 
we're all going to be out on the street celebrating something that happened many, many years ago before most of us were born. We don't have that same sort of emotional attachment to what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan because some people saw it as an unjust war. But I think equally, Andy, some people were just unaware of what we were trying to achieve out there. Was it relayed to you uh, as a, a soldier? Listen, guys, this is why we're doing this. You know, were there very clear uh, principles in place so that you would be motivated in that regard, at least? Yeah, I mean, I've got a kind of few opinions on it, but I think number one, um, again, once I was in Afghanistan, my sole aim was to look after the guy to the left of me and to the right of me. You know, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't thinking about you or my family and friends back home thinking if I if I kill the enemy out there, they're not going to be able to kill my family. That wasn't the priority. It was to look after the guy to the left and to the right of me. That was number one. When you start looking into the bigger picture of things, you know, I've seen the enemy out there. I know that the training camps that were there, I've seen them firsthand and, you know, I've, I've fought, fought with them. So... I definitely think something needed to be done about the, the threat of terrorism, whether it was a 15-year deployment in Afghanistan, whether that was the right way to go about it, maybe not. But I 100% believe that something needed to be done in retaliation for obviously 9-11 um, and also the 7-7 bombing. So I think it's such a touchy subject because one part of me thinks, you know, when, when people could argue whether it was a just war, then I think, you know, did my friends die for nothing? Well, no, they didn't because... You know, who's to say if we wasn't there having a fight with them in Afghanistan, would we have seen more terrorism attacks? You know, who knows? At the same time, was it worth the the 450-odd so soldiers who, who killed out there? You know, no, I don't think it was. So it's such a tough one. You know, I think we all understood the reasons why we were there. But without doubt, it was difficult at times to, to motivate yourself to think we're going to fight this enemy, you know, thousands of miles away from home. What is the point? You've just got to try and look at the bigger picture and realise that, you know, if we're not having a fight with them here, they're going to be training up. And also, you know, you forget about the, the thousands and thousands of Afghanistans who, who actually we made their life a little bit better as well. Yeah. Because I've seen that firsthand as well. I've seen towns like Sangin, where the Taliban had occupied it, then flee. And then it was like, you know, markets springing up again all over the place. So I'd like to think we, we made Afghanistan a, a better place as well. Mm. Uh, and you know i've had uh, conversations with people who were at the top of government during that time who are still convinced you know despite all the criticism uh, that's been thrown their way that they did the right thing uh, i think privately uh, some of them concede that they felt as though they were a little let down by the americans actually uh, in terms of that lack of preparedness uh, but nonetheless, you know, they're all flinching in their opinion that something, as you say, Andy, needed to be done. Uh, and their view is that, that unfortunately, you know, unlike uh, the experience with European wars, because of the location of that enemy, it's very difficult sometimes for us to appreciate uh, the horrors and the threat uh, that the Taliban uh, and, and, you know, others uh, did actually um, made to, to to this country and to the rest of the world. So, yeah, I think it's a tough call. You know, I, I'm, you know, just as I have some sympathy, uh, not as much, I have to say, with uh, with the current government. Uh, I think any prime minister, any government that's having to make that call on whether to send troops into battle, 
you know it must be it must be a really horrendous thing not as horrendous as the poor buggers like yourself who have to go ultimately but nonetheless i don't think those decisions were taken lightly um so let's let's fast forward then you, you you're in afghanistan um clearly as you say you've you've undertaken your train and you've done a bit of a tour in iraq albeit very different to the experience that you're now facing in afghanistan uh, and then you know, you, you said an interesting thing you said earlier, Andy. You had a bit of a feeling in, in the pit of your stomach that something might go wrong. Uh, and of course, something did, didn't it? Yeah, it was the 3rd of February, 2009. I only had six weeks left to push in Afghanistan and I was due to return home. But again, up until that point, it had just been so kinetic with the enemy. Every single day you stepped foot outside of our base, we came into some sort of contact with the enemy. At that point, I'd had a friend who lost an arm and a leg, another friend who'd lost a, who'd lost a foot, um, friends who'd been in shot, and it was, a, like I say, a very dangerous time. And on this particular morning, it was something, it was a patrol that we'd done hundreds of times before, and the objective for this particular morning was to get out to a position where we knew the Taliban were going to be close by. The idea was get out in the cover of darkness, wait until first light, and then basically give the good news to the enemy. That was essentially the plan. So a few guys set off out to the west and we set off out to the east again about three or four o'clock in the morning. Again, it's pitch black. You can barely see your hand in front of your face. And as I'm walking along, my best mate is leading the way. And we're walking along the field and to our right-hand side, there was an irrigation ditch. And on the other side of the ditch, you could just about make out trees scattered every few metres. I'm walking in my best mate's footsteps. And he eventually turned around and said, Andy, we need to jump over this, this ditch at some point. I said, mate, I'm right behind. Whenever you're good to go, you just let me know. He walked a little bit further and stopped and said, we'll go here. And I kind of stood next to him. He ran so I could jump over the ditch. I was the second man ready to jump. And unfortunately, what he's not saw, because it was again so dark, is there was a tripwire, maybe an inch or so off the ground, in between the two trees. He's jumped, hit this tripwire, which was attached to two bombs. Two bombs went off in between us, blowing him forward and then blowing me back. So the way the bombs worked, it kind of blasted him away 30 or 40 metres forward. He suffered a, a broken elbow, a broken femur and a nasty bang to the head. Thankfully, he survived. Whereas the bomb kind of went off in front of me. So then I just got all the shrapnel. So I think I suffered 27 separate injuries in that, in that one split second. And shrapnel to my face, broken sternum, broken elbow, a chunk missing out both forearms. I severed my femoral artery, a chunk out my left eye. I broke both lower legs. I have severe nerve damage to both hands and both feet. And I later found out uh, that I lost the ability to have children as well. So in that one split second, you know, my, my whole life changed forever. Thankfully, the guys on the ground got to me as quickly as they could. They started patching me up, placed a tourniquet on my leg, which saved my life. And then for the next 40 minutes or so, again, they were just doing everything they could to keep me alive until a helicopter came in and picked me up. And that's when I don't really remember anything else from that day. My next memory is waking up two weeks later uh, back here in the UK after being placed into an induced coma. Wow. So it was, uh, I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine. I'm sure nobody listening in uh, can begin to imagine, you know, what that sort of experience is like. Um, you fall into a coma for two weeks. Um, do you remember your first thoughts when you eventually came round, Andy? Yeah, I remember 
um, waking up and seeing my dad. Kind of, he was, um, I think he must have just been out for a ciggy or something, my dad, or for a coffee, and I saw him walking towards my bed. I think I must have been looking like I was going to wake up, and the nurse quickly ran and grabbed him, and yeah, I just seen him walking over towards me, and I just, just started crying my eyes out, and, and he did too, and we gave each other a big hug, and I think the hug must have lasted about 20 minutes, and I just squeezed him and was crying, and and, and that was it then, really. The, over the next couple of days, was still a bit hazy because of all the drugs I was on, and then when I kind of became more conscious, it was then the kind of reality of, of what I'd been through. I was bandaged head to toe. I had tubes coming out of me everywhere. This big cage around my leg to try and reconstruct the leg. And the kind of, yeah, the severity of, of my injuries and, and the rehabilitation process ahead of me it all, all became clear. And, and at that point, um, listeners are saying nobody can even begin to imagine what that experience is like. Um, but we do have, don't we, as, as human beings, uh, some more than others, and you obviously in abundance, a resilience uh, and this survival instinct that kicks in. Uh, and also this ability to start thinking about, well, what do I do with this situation to make sure that, that my life is as best as it possibly can be? So, okay, an awful lot of the things that, you perhaps were planning and would have been planning with only six weeks of the tour left. You were probably looking forward to getting home, going out for a drink with your mates, going back. I'm already booked in Thailand. That was my you big know, thing. In all, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden you're thrown into this, this other situation. Now at that point, Andy, um, you know, and there will be even people that you've probably fought alongside who just don't have that mental strength to actually go on um, and sadly you know we, we, we all know of suicide rates we know, we know of the explosion that there's been in recent years of mental health issues uh, I'm not sure whether there's been an explosion or whether there's just greater awareness to be honest I think mental health has always been out there um, but there's something inside you mate whatever it is um, that has kicked in uh, and you've decided to take that alternative route, which is, I'm going to make the best of this. How did that come about? Were the particular people around you that helped you through that? Or was it just something inside yourself that was determined to, to make the best of this very, very bad situation? I think it was a few things. I think, again, number one, I always come back to my mum. I think if I had not lost my mum when I was 12, I don't think I'd be as resilient and determined as I am now. So that gave me the confidence to think, that was the worst thing I've ever been through. If I can overcome that, then this will be a walk in the park. So I think that gave me confidence that I, that I could overcome it. I think looking at my dad, you know, he brought up three kids. He was just 36 when he lost his wife and he's brought up three kids on his own. And that must have been, you know, hell of a tough job whilst holding down a job as a firefighter. So he was a big inspiration to me and, you know, gave me a lot of hope that despite how tough things can be, you know, things can be overcome. And I think the guys surrounding me, you know, the other injured soldiers, I think in life it's important to, you know, not compare yourself, but but just to take a step back and get a bit of perspective. And I was surrounded by guys who were double amputees, triple amputees, guys that were blind. And for me, I was thinking, I've only, you know, got a bit of a dodgy right leg at the moment. You know, if I can, if they can overcome that, then then surely I can. And I think the last big thing was I had something to aim for. You know, my leg at the time was going through a reconstruction process. So it, I didn't really have time to sit and, feel sorry for myself. I had this goal to try and get myself better. And I just broke the goals down, you know, 
and they started off ridiculously small. You know, initially it was the goal was just to sit up in my bed for, for 20 minutes at a time. You know, that would be the goal. Then it would be, you know, go to the toilet on your own. Then it would be, you know, do this on your own and do that. So I didn't really give myself a chance to sit there and feel sorry for myself. It was all about getting myself better. And, and I had all the inspiration around me and, and, the, and that determination and resilience built in from losing my mum. So don't get me wrong, there was down days, of course, the way. But I think overall, I don't think I struggled in the early days. The, the biggest struggle I had, I had with my mental... Um, the kind of mental well-being was, was when a, a few years later when I left the Marines and I kind of found that transition from the military to Sibby Street quite difficult. Mm. Initially, I don't think I struggled that much with, with coming to terms with the injury. Mm. Okay. So how long was it between, you know, your admission into hospital uh, and then you coming back uh, into, if I can put it this way, normal uh, life? Uh, and... And, and you're still in the Marines at that point, are you, Andy? Yeah, so when I woke up from the coma, I still had my leg, but it was so badly damaged that after about 18 months, I decided to have the leg amputated for a better quality of life, which was done at the end of 2010. I then spent another probably 18 months. Hey, hang on, just, just bear with me a second there. So you've, you've got, it's your right leg, isn't it? That yeah. you, you was really badly injured. Uh, and what the rehabilitation isn't it just isn't taken as as well as it should. It it what, yeah, it was, what was the case what, of that's a hell of a decision to take, isn't it, to get your your leg amputated? Yeah, I basically had to. I had this big, huge. It's called an Elizaroff frame, an external fixation on my right lower leg that went from my knee to my ankle, and the plan was to try and grow six centimeters of bone back. Which, to be fair, they they did manage to do. It. You know, it's unbelievable what they can do in the medical world. The big problem, though, for me was I couldn't run, I couldn't play football, I couldn't climb mountains, I couldn't live the life I wanted to live. And in the end, I was becoming just, just really unhappy that I wasn't living up to my potential. And I was surrounded by guys who, like you say, had lost their legs and were double amputees, triple amputees. And they were doing all these amazing sports and challenges, and yet I couldn't do anything. And I was in a lot of pain. Again, I couldn't walk properly, and I just knew I needed to make you know, a decision in my, in my life Again, I relate all these things back to business and back to, you know, personal lives because one of the commando values is courage. And I say, you know, you've got to have courage in your own life because we've all got to make big decisions that we don't always want to make, decisions that are going to upset people, that are going to hurt people, that people maybe don't understand. But there's always a point in your life when you've got to make those big decisions. And for me, my dad didn't want, to, want me to have the leg amputated. He just wants, he, he just couldn't understand how... I'd want to do it. He just thought, you know, I'm his only son. Just be grateful you're alive. Who cares if you can't run? But for me, it was about trying to get my life back. So I chose to have the leg amputated and thankfully it went really well. And it's probably one of the only times I can say to my dad that I told you so. Um, but yeah, so after I had the leg amputated, that's where the, the kind of famous story of the, the You'll Never Walk tattoo came in. I did have a tattoo that said You'll Never Walk Alone, but after the operation it now says You'll Never Walk. Um and after that, it was another year of rehabilitation. And then I ended up leaving the Marines in the, in the May of 2012. So, yeah, just, just over three years since I was blown up in Afghanistan. And for me, I found myself in such a weird, weird place, to be honest, Frank. It was a bit of a taboo subject at the time as well. I think money is in general, but I kind of got pensioned off. And my pension, you know, it didn't make me a millionaire, but it meant that I didn't have to work every, every day, which initially I thought that was great. I thought, you know what? It's kind of, again, nowhere near the millions people probably think it gave me. 
a couple hundred grand to get to buy a house and I had this monthly income to that kind of made life a bit easier and I got to a point where I thought this is great you know I don't have to work if you like a nine to five job or anything like that but very quickly became apparent that it was the worst thing in the world because whether I got up at six in the morning or three o'clock in the afternoon nothing actually changed for me you know and the, the kind of having a beer on a maybe a Friday night ten to a Friday Saturday Sunday and then normally on a Sunday where I'd be going back to work in the Marines it turned into well I don't have to be up Monday morning so I can have a few more and I'm dragging the lads out a bit longer on a Sunday afternoon and you know, the football's on at four o'clock on a Sunday. It was always my favourite time and you'd stay out a bit longer. And then, again, there was nothing to get up on a Monday for and I started drinking too much. I was gambling too much and relationships around me started to break down. And, and that's when I found the biggest um, struggle for my well-being was that transition from the Marines because I didn't have no one to answer to anymore. I didn't have no structure. I didn't feel like I had a real purpose. And I noticed my life started to really spiral out of control very quickly. And it was down to running and sport, really. That's what helped get me get myself back on track. But yeah, without doubt, that was the that was the, that was a really tough period of my life. That transition from the military back into civilian civilian life. Yeah, can I just ask you a question? Our point, point, Andy, because you know you've talked very warmly and very fondly about the training and the uh, camaraderie that is built within the Marine Corps, and you were very um, again complimentary about the leadership that was out there when you were you know in the middle of what must have been a horrendous situation in Afghanistan when you come out of the military what support structures are in place not a lot to be honest I think especially not in not in the northwest I think the northwest has got one of the highest um it's recruit one of the highest most popular recruiting grounds in the UK and yeah there's no kind of rehabilitation centers in and around the northwest for example, in the Marines, the big recovery centre was down in Plymouth. And the big problem was I thought the Marines had, which I sadly don't think nothing's changed, but I remember when I was coming out of my recovery and they were kind of saying, right, you need to come to the kind of recovery centre and plan your life for Civvy Street. And I was thinking, well, I want to be at home trying to plan that. Mm. And they were kind of making me go down to Plymouth Monday to Friday. And I was thinking, my, what's the point of me being here when my new life is going to be 300 miles up the road? And I think despite... It's just, the Northwest being a massive, you know, recruitment hub. I don't think a lot is done locally for us. And again, it's, it's kind of two-pronged. I think the, the friendships and the leaderships I personally had, you know, they done everything they could. They checked in on me and they, you know, made sure I was okay. But the thing is with the Marines, everyone goes on. And when we got back from Afghanistan, my bosses will then go on to a different post and have a different draft and might even be posted outside of the UK. So, it was more of a social kind of friendly, how you doing, how you keeping, can I do anything for you? I think the bigger picture of the Marines is something that's improving all the time, but it can definitely get better because I don't think the support is there for when people come onto Civvy Street, whether it's the Marines or the Army. I mean, I can only speak about the Marines. And again, I think it's more, it should be more government-led because the Marines have got the Royal Marine Charities. And I think when it comes to charities, they do so much. Mm. the government just don't do enough and it's to the point now where it's this kind of really unhealthy cycle where mm. the government's saying well we don't need to do much because there's so many charities out there but the charities like we're only here because you're not doing enough so it's this kind of yeah. and it's that that's the thing which i think is really is really um troubling when you think of veterans coming out on the street and like i say well i'll, I'll blow my own trumpet like i've done quite well since i've come out onto city streets i've always been quite switched on in that sense but there are a lot of lads who maybe have done a lot longer than me 
and a bit more institutionalized and maybe do struggle a lot more. Mm. I was thankfully able to kind of see where I was going wrong and make those changes. But I think like you see from the amount of homelessness and a lot of lads who are in, unfortunately find themselves in prison, I think there's a lot more work that can be done from the government to, uh, to help with that transition. Mm. And I think, listen, Andy, I think this point is, is very timely because, uh, you know, Thursday evenings, eight o'clock, we're all out clapping the NHS workers, clapping care workers and other key emergency services. Um, you know, let's hope um, that the government's warm words at this moment in time aren't soon forgotten six, seven, eight months down the line. Because again, I've never heard a politician do anything other than stand at a dispatch box and heap praise upon uh, our armed forces. Um, but then, you know, that's got to be backed by actions. It's no good. Warm words don't, uh, don't pay the bills. And more importantly, uh, don't get people back into good mental health. So, uh, so, you know, hopefully those messages are being learned through this crisis, but equally, uh, I know some of the challenges that you're still facing need to be addressed as well. So listen, let's get back to your own personal story. Um, you, you talked about, you know, your frustration with not being able to climb and run and walk in, in, in the fashion that you wanted to. Um, and again, you know, I'm sure a lot of people sat listening to this will, will be able to, to relate to that. Um, but there's something within Andy Grant that says, well, yeah, I, I want to do a bit of walk and I want to do a bit of, but actually I want to do more than that. Um, so did you set yourself a challenge um, when you became an amputee uh, with the particular objectives that you set yourself on a physical level that you thought, I'm going to hit that target? Uh, not initially. Again, the, the target started off really small. I think one of the big things I've done to get myself out of the rut I was in was I got a dog. You know, I knew that dog would give me responsibility, it would give me a purpose, it would give my day a bit of structure. So suddenly I was getting out walking twice a day. Then I thought, you know what, I'll take him on a little jog. The jogs turned into a bit longer runs. And before I knew it, I was getting myself fit and healthy. And I started then comparing myself to kind of other guys who I was going through rehabilitation with. You know, who's the fastest out of us two? We're both amputees. Let's go from there. And around about that same time, Prince Harry came up with the idea for the Invictus Games, which was like a mini Paralympics for injured soldiers. I went down to that and was lucky enough to win a couple of gold medals in my races. And it was at that point I started looking up the Paralympics. So again, my goals didn't turn out to break any records. It was almost just do this and then look again, do this, look again. And unfortunately for me, the longest distance in the Paralympics is 400 metres for someone with a below-the-knee amputation. And I like to run a little bit longer than that. And I thought there's got to be other amputees around the world who like to run longer distances. So I've done a bit of Googling and I found out there was a guy from Canada who'd lost his leg in a car accident and he could run 10,000 metres in 37 minutes, 53 seconds. He was the fastest in the world. And then that's when I suddenly switched focus and thought, you know what, I want to try and I want to try and break that. And the thing is, what well, again I relate back to business and, and to teamwork is it's nothing great is ever achieved by one person, you know, going alone. It's when you surround yourself by the right minds of people, and you know, use that support network. And again, I love the saying: if you want to be a millionaire, the first thing you should do is go and hang around with a load of millionaires. You start picking up on a little snippet of advice and how they go about things, and then. Before long, you'll find yourself a millionaire. So the first thing i done, I thought, if I want to be a great runner, I'm just going to go and hang around with all the greatest runners in the city. So I went and joined Liverpool Harriers Running Club and, and trained with those guys and got myself a fantastic running coach, a guy called Tony Clark. And again, I tell business leaders all the time, you know, Colin Powell, he was, in the, he was an American Marine. He was very well respected. And then he 
jumped over to the political sphere and he was once asked um, in his opinion what makes a great leader and he said a great leader is someone sorry a great leader is someone who you will follow if only out of great if only out of curiosity and i thought that was a great that's a great kind of way to look at a leader you know you you're not quite sure but you just think i'm curious to know this is I want to go with them and it, I think curiosity sums up that, that trust in someone and that belief in them and I found a running coach who had just that you know and I, I listened to him and I followed him and, and then thankfully in, the, in July 2016 I ended up breaking that record by 36 seconds running a 10k in 37 minutes 17 seconds and the best bit about that it's not that I'm the fastest disabled man or I'm the fastest one-legged man in the world it was more the fact that I had a ton of messages from old marine mates who were telling me that you know, I was still fitter than them. And I think for me, that was the time when I, I kind of ridded myself of this injured Marine and this kind of, oh, you know, he was once a Marine and, you know, he, he once was dead really fit and really active. And that was the point I could say, actually, you know what? We can still go for a run now if you want. You know, I'll still beat you now. And I think that was the moment for me that I'd kind of redefine myself and, and what I'm most proud about. Yeah. And then, of course, you've started to get your life back on track, uh, quite literally in some respects, I suppose. Uh, and you've ended up in a situation, Andy, where you're now being able to give an awful lot of your experiences back. Um, you're able to talk, as you say, to corporates, but I know that you do a lot in the community as well. You're sharing your story, you're sharing your experiences. Um, again, was there a, a particular break that you got, you know, it, again, difficult for, for anyone to imagine when, you know, you wake up one day and you think, I know, I'm going to become a business motivational speaker. Yeah. Uh, you know, so how did that come about? It was so funny. I, um, after I left sixth form, after a year, I kept a good relationship with all my old teachers. And uh, when I got back from Royal Marine training, they asked me, can I come and do a little talk in the class for just 20 kids about, you know, career options. So I went and just spoke about the Marines. It went really well. A year or so later, I got back from Iraq. They said, can you come and talk about what Iraq was like? I'd done that. Then when I got back from Afghanistan after being injured, I got another phone call. And they said, Andy, can you come and do another talk about your experiences and your recovery? And at this point, I, I was just about to have my leg amputated. And uh, I said, yeah, I can come and speak to the kids. That's no problem. She turned around, the school secretary, and said, this time, can you wear your uniform and all of your medals? And I thought, I'm not getting all dressed up just to come to the school for 20 minutes, you know, to be... I don't mind coming in and speaking to them, but I'm not getting dressed up. And she said, I oh, know this time it's in Bootle Town Hall in front of 700 people. And then I was like, <laughs> hang on, I might need to actually practice something here. It was all really very informal and just off the cuff. So I sat down with my old English teacher, uh, Peter Gall, and we came up with a speech. And the speech was along the lines of, you know, all these young kids are about to go off into the big wide world and who knows what life has in store for them, but the importance of staying positive and I related it back to me about to have my leg amputated and who knows where that was going to lead me. But again, the importance of surrounding yourself by good people and having hope for the future. And I'd done this 20 minute speech and I ended up getting a standing ovation and people were hugging me and crying afterwards. And, you know, and I just walked off stage thinking, you know what, I, I quite enjoyed that. It gave me that bit of a buzz. And, and then over the years and years, I you know, went to see a life coach and kind of said, look, I've got this story to tell. I think it could potentially, you know, help people. And, and then what's been great is with my own personal recovery, you know, my own personal challenges, whether that be climbing the highest mountain in South America, which I've been lucky enough to do, or like you say, breaking the world record. It all filters into kind of my journey and, and the kind of my recovery. And 
so the speaking's kind of just grew organically really it's I always joke and say I'm the worst businessman in the world I've never had a kind of a big marketing scheme to have I think if you look at my social media you'll have one picture of me standing in front of 500 people doing a motivational talk the next is me having a beer watching Liverpool so there's not a really kind of business here with my social media it's just it's just kind of grew from from where the mouth really and and repeat business which which has been really nice that people can see the the, the, you know the kind of humanistic side of, of what I do it's not all kind of really shoving kind of motivational quotes down your neck 24-7 I think it's just a it's just a human story of, of overcoming adversity and hopefully that can help in in many ways and I think that the best thing about me making it personal like that is I always talk about the three hardest things I kind of learned when I woke up from that coma was you know I knew that I'd never be able to run or I was told I'd never be able to run and I always wanted to run a marathon one day so that straight away that dream was dashed I knew straight away my career was going to be over and again that killed me because I loved being in the Marines and then again being told I can't have kids and again I always talk about that was the worst thing in the world you know it's impossible to put a positive spin on that there was no light at the end of the tunnel life seemed pretty impossible yeah 10 years on I ended up running a Liverpool marathon last year something I thought I'd never do and finishing in just over four hours I'd done that wearing the Royal Marine vest that I'd been honoured with breaking the world record so again although technically not in the marines i still felt part of that royal marine family and then thanks to the medical of ivf i've now got a little girl who's five who's already got me wrapped around the little fingers despite only being five and i always kind of finish off talking about that because the biggest thing i've learned with the motivational speaking is that whether it's trying to give people a lift in the business world or in their own personal life is that when you're going through a tough time or through challenges the biggest thing i've learned is that you don't actually know if something's a good or a bad thing until it's run its course. You know, at the time, getting blown up in Afghanistan, how can I ever think that that's a good thing? Mm. Yeah, 11 years on, as I'm sitting here talking to you, getting blown up in Afghanistan was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. So I kind of just, I've used the motivational speaking in, in, in business and in schools and and hopefully just to people in, in ordinary life, just to kind of say, look, here's my story. I'm not going to, I've not got a degree in motivational resilience. I'm just going to share with you my story and hopefully if there's a little, snippet that you can take away from that and apply it to your work life or your home life then hopefully that can help uh, Andy not often I'm speechless <laughs> um, but but I'll tell you what an incredible um, story uh, and incredible achievements that you've managed to pull off uh, in that 11 year period and I'm sure an inspiration uh, to anyone looking in today and uh, you know the other thing I'd say is that uh, uh, you know, we, and we're, we're all guilty of it, aren't we? Oh, you know, this is a terrible time we're going through at the moment, having to stay in watching Netflix box sets and, you know, spending more time than we need to with the kids and all that sort of thing. Uh, if nothing else, uh, mate, you've put things into perspective for us. Just absolutely incredible story that you're able to tell and, and talk about motivational. Um, but listen, mate, I... I uh, we do want to get you in front of a live audience and we'll do that as, yeah, as quickly as, yeah, as we possibly can because the downtown members would absolutely love um, to see you live. I know that. Um, but we did have a, a mentioned right at the start uh, a little bit of banter over the football. There's not much banter Evertonians can have at the moment other than uh, feel a little bit of... Uh, of uh, satisfaction at the fact that you've not quite been able to get your hands on that Premier League title yet. 
Um, yeah, and listen, you were reminiscing though uh, about uh, around a year ago, uh, to, well, a year ago today, uh, and it was that uh, amazing performance that Liverpool put in at uh, at Anfield to to beat Barcelona four 0 and then obviously go on and uh, and win the Champions League. Um, again, how much of uh, a part is football? in your life and it's a serious question I thought Jürgen Klopp made a fantastic comment as we came into this crisis football's the most important of the least important things yeah. um, but I think it's you know it's again it's in the DNA of of, of this city and many others um, and football is such an important part of, of the community um, so uh, how much are you missing it? Oh so much so much I mean it was a just a huge part of my life. I've had a season ticket now for the last few years and been lucky enough to travel all around Europe watching Liverpool. And funnily enough, a great story that come from the motivational speaking was I was lucky enough to do a, a motivational talk to the England football team just prior to their World Cup when they got to the semi-final. If they got to the final, my price would have went through the roof. So I was a little bit gutted that they never won. <laughs> but um, on the back of that, though, I ended up becoming um, friends with Jordan Henderson. Now, straight after that Barcelona game, I just booked my flights to Madrid. You know, I thought I'm going to get there by hook or by crook. I'm going, and if I get a ticket, I get a ticket. I didn't actually get one in the ballet. Um, and then 48 hours, or maybe a week before the final, uh, I get a message on Instagram from Jordan Henderson asking me if I've managed to sort a ticket for the final, to, to which I reply no. And then long story short, 48 hours before the game in Madrid, um, we're texting each other. He gives me his address, and I drive over to his house, and... He hands me over a ticket for the final. And I think for me that, you know, it, it just summed up how, how important football was, you know. And I think that kind of the cheesiest it sounds to kind of always try and be the best version of you you can be. You know, I'd went and done work, essentially a motivational talk and just trying to give the best talk I could be. And thankfully it left an impression with Jordan. And then, you know, a year later, I ended up getting a ticket off him for the, for the football. And some of the some of the memories football has given me, it, it's been like like you, you so put it, or, or Jürgen put it, it's the most important thing of the unimportant things. Because yes, in the grand scheme of things, it's just you know twenty two players kicking a ball around. But what it's meant for me over the last few years and all throughout my recovery, it, it's been second on. It's given me that it's given me that boost when I needed it. I was very lucky when I first got injured. Uh, Jamie Carragher come round to my house to visit me. You know, that at the time in 2009 was such a huge lift to be lying there, you know, on death's door. I look like death warmed up, sitting there, all chunks missing here and there. And then a knock on the door and Jamie Carragher walks in. And it was just the best kind of uplift and feel ever. And, and that's the power of sports. That's what that's what sport does to us. And um, yeah, I'm absolutely, absolutely gutted that it's, it's, it's not here. And obviously we all want it back as soon as possible when it's safe to do so. But think it's just got a huge part to play in the community um, for sport in general but, but definitely football in our city and I just can't wait for it to be back mm. Yeah, you're not on your own even as a blue, uh, I can't wait to, uh, to to suffer the misery on occasions. We've got a derby haven't we as soon as it gets That's going. the next game isn't it that's the, that's the next game up and, and you know ironically enough as daft as this may sound, I was really looking forward to that, it was a Monday night game under the floodlights at Goodison Park you know, we'd just been beaten for the first time, I think, for a long time under Angelotti. And I, I, I actually think we had we had half a chance um, because I think that on the back of a defeat, 
Um, and on, as I say, under the light at Goodison against Liverpool, trying to stop you winning the league at our place. Yeah. I, I think that would have been an incredible contest. I'm not, I mean, where, where I, and I know some Liverpool supporters and mates of mine who are watching this will think I'm taking the mickey, but I'm not. You know, the, the thing that is sad about this whole situation is that, I, listen, I think Liverpool will rightly be rewarded the, the, the title at some point. But if it's behind closed doors, as they're predicting, it just ain't going to be the same, is it? And again, you know, from the city's perspective, one of the huge things uh, about football is, is its economic impact. Yeah. So, you know, Liverpool win the European Champions League. The chief exec of the City Council was making this point yesterday. You know, when City won the Premier League, I think they got 75,000 people in the city for the, the homecoming, which is fantastic. Liverpool won the Champions League. It was like 750,000 people or something mad like that. Um, and, you know, if you talk to any in the hospitality sector, you know, every Liverpool game that's been cancelled has cost them about 30 million quid. So it's a huge impact, not just in terms of our emotional attachments to the game, but in terms of the economics as well. So we do need, you know, as, as, uh, as distasteful as some people find talking about the return of football at the moment, for all sorts of reasons, I think we need it. You know back. what's so funny as well? Do you know the amount of, again, I'm, again, I'm the worst businessman ever. It's always kind of weird them out. But do you know the amount of messages I'll have, whether it be email or LinkedIn, asking me to potentially go and do a talk and football will be in there straight away. Be people yeah. in people in London, people over in the States. Hi Andy, love to get you in. Da da da. And by the way, huge red too. You know, see you on social media for going the match. And it's yeah. such a it's such a way in with people. It's such a yeah. it's great to talk about whether you're Liverpool or Everton. It's yeah. sport is part of part of all of our lives and and again, I'm not bitter at all. I would love nothing more than than Everton to do well. And I remember the season when, um, the 2014 season, when I think it was Everton nearly got the Champions League spot, was it, I think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember just every weekend, just reds and blues out together. And we were both winning every week and the pubs are booming. Everyone's smiling. And I'd love nothing more than to go back to that because it, it just helps everyone out, doesn't it? And, and I think that's that's what it'll be nice now to um, just to get football back and everyone smiling again. Fingers crossed, uh, Andy. I, I, I want to end on a positive note, really. But you, it's not again, so you, you, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, listen, let's see, let's see. I, I've I've got faith in Carlo. Uh, he is. I was again. I was I was reflecting with somebody the other day to say how lucky we are as a city to have Klopp and and Ancelotti at the yeah. same time. I mean, it's like football royalty, isn't it? So, yeah. so let's let's hope. Um, but the, as I say, I wanted to end on a positive note, but I, I'm, something stuck in my mind earlier that you said, um, you, you, you still got a problem with the government in terms of compensation and, and you won't be on your own. So this isn't, you know, a personal crusade for, for Andy Grant. Um, listen, we deal with some very influential people. We've got some very influential business leaders involved in our network. Is there anything we can do to help or... Uh, are you well on with that? Are the, the people out there who are advising you and taking your case and others forward? Yeah, I've had uh, Steve Rotherham has, uh, has helped me in the past. Uh, write a letter to, uh, he wrote a letter to David Cameron, which I got a letter back. But again, nothing, nothing seems to change, unfortunately. With regards to legal help, um, no, it's just kind of me. Um, there, so if there's anyone, anyone who could advise or has got anything like that, then that'd be a great help. Um, but at the moment, no, the... The government seemed to be fighting harder than the Taliban did not to um, not to pay me, so it's just a kind of wait and see, really. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, I'm I'm not going to end on that note. I'm going to end by saying huge thanks 
uh, for joining us today. When we started the conversation, I, I promised you I'd keep you for half an hour. Uh, it's um, been over an hour. I've not so. done an interview like this for a while. It's always <laughs> just me going off all the time. So it's been nice to have a two-way chat for a change. Well, it's been, great, um, it's been great chatting, Frank. So thank you. Well, it's just been such a tremendous conversation for me to be part of, mate. So thank you for agreeing to come and join us. As I say, love to get you to a live event in the not too distant oh, future. Yeah. Uh, and just keep on doing what you're doing, mate. And good luck in the future. No, thanks a lot, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, Take mate. Care. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.